Daniel Hall is a programmer and senior software engineer. Daniel's love for software began at the age of eight when his parents invested in a Commodore VIC-20. Daniel Hall's early adoption of Microsoft methodology has earned him numerous awards in the nuclear, telecommunications, and aerospace industries. Technology was his escape. Daniel is always learning. He is always staying up to date on technology. Despite being over 50 years old, Daniel's desire for learning is still the same. He is always building something on the side to keep his skills sharp. On top of that, Daniel is one of the nicest guys I know. He has a heart of gold and is always doing what he can to make the world a better place. Listen to follow Daniel's journey. Visit nodegree.com to start your journey. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash nodegree. Every contribution is appreciated. This show wouldn't be possible without you. Let's get this show started. So today I have Daniel Hall, and I'm so happy to have you. Man, you're just such an inspiration. You're literally one of the nicest guys I know with one of the biggest hearts, and you're extremely talented on top of that. Can you give the audience a brief introduction of what you do? Oh my gosh, that's a loaded question, man. <laughs> well, I think one of the most amazing things that I do in my life is that I am a full-time software developer. And from what I've heard from my wife and my kids, that I'm a pretty decent dad of five adopted children. No, I think you're more than a decent dad. I mean, I see the stuff you post about your kids and your kids are... You know, definitely going places with such an with an example like you. So you mentioned a full-time software developer. So can you be a little more specific? Like, what does a full-time software developer even do? Well, for me, when I'm sleeping, I dream code. I've woken up sometimes in the middle of the night, and there may have been a problem that I've worked on for, you know, a couple, two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden, I'm dreaming, and it just comes to me in my dream, and I wake up, and... I got to get to a computer as soon as I wake up because I'm like, oh my God, I figured it out. So to me, that's a full-time developer. But it's being that kind of developer, you also have that balance because we have our kids and you have to have that balance and you have to know when to put that technology down, Janiad, and you know make that time for your family. No, I think it's, it's very important to be the work-life balance. And even... If it wasn't for your family, it's just good to sort of get away because a lot of times you need to step away to be creative, right? Sometimes when you're going for a walk or you're doing something else, the idea comes, right? Sometimes just staring at the screen for so long, you know, only ever yields certain results. Now, let's kind of take it back. You've been programming for a long time. So when did you get your first start in programming? I started writing software back in the 70s, the late 70s, uh, at the age of eight. And... My mom would go to her church function and she would drop me off at a community college that was about maybe about an eighth quarter of a mile up the street. You know, back in the 70s, it was safe. You could drop the kids off, you know, you could. And it was a live community library. So there's tons of people around and they had a computer center that was open to the public. And I would go in and just fiddle on the computers. Just I loved tinkering. I loved figuring things out. And I would come home, you know, in my first adventures there, I would come home with these reams of green bar paper. And um, by the time I was 13, I was helping college students with their, like, their exams and their finals of, you know, COBOL and Pascal. So you learned in the library, but how did you get interested in it? Like, what drew you to software and coding? It wasn't 
anything that I had had prior to that. The first time that my mom, my adopted mom, you see, I was in foster care before I was adopted by the Halls. And it was a pretty traumatic first five years of my life. All I knew was that chaos and that trauma. My adopted mom, when she dropped me off there the first time, like I said, I came home with that, that stack of green bar paper. She sat down with me, Janiad, and she sat there and just listened to me go on and on about, look at what I did here and look at what I did there. And look at this little program that I learned how to write. And she showed up every single time that I would come back. And she showed me what that positive feedback could do. And I craved that positive feedback because the only type of feedback that I really got before coming to the halls was all that negative feedback or being called nothing but a piece of shit when my foster dad would shove me into a corner. So that positive feedback was a catalyst for me wanting to learn more. I craved it so much. And, you know, at some point it did become kind of an addiction because I'd wake up in the morning and when I was a, a young kid and I would just code, I would sit there and code in my room because it was an escape for me. And then I'd go and have lunch and I'd come back and code. It helped me to get my mind off of all the trauma, both, you know, that was right at the forefront of my brain and probably helped me escape, you know, subconsciously as well. So I would spend many days just doing that. And of course, my mom, she was just advocating and showing up and just taking such an interest in that. And that's really how it all started. What did Daniel Hall code when you were in elementary school? So I had a Commodore VIC-20 at the time. It was a version of BASIC called GW BASIC. Actually, it wasn't even GW BASIC. It was just BASIC at the time. GW BASIC came later on with the IBMs. I would just sit there and I'd write games. You could, you could actually just move. You can move the mouse around. You could write code to move the mouse around. I was just fascinated by how all that worked. And, uh, you know, within about two or three months, I was just writing my first game of just Pong, you know, moving a little thing up and down, and it would bounce against a wall. So you had to program where the walls were and all the pixels of where the boundaries were for your little, your Pong paddle there. And uh, I loved it. I loved learning. And it, it was that instant gratification of just in that drive. It helped me build that drive to want to learn and want to accomplish those types of things to create. That was my, at that age, my version of being able to create, you know, some type of software to do something. Wow. So you started elementary school. So now what were you coding in middle school? So obviously you're already coding simple things. So what are you coding <laughs> yeah. in middle school? We, they called them trash 80s back then, I think, uh, TRS 80s. I graduated from at least like a Commodore a VIC-20. Then we got an Atari system, and then we got a Commodore 64. So I kind of moved up from a Commodore VIC-20 to a Commodore 64, still developing in BASIC, just learning how to do it on a different system. And still just writing games at that point in time, because I didn't really have any real-world application to attribute to that. And all the games that we developed, or I developed, would be saved to this cassette tape, you know, the old uh, cassette tapes. So we'd save it to the cassette tape. And then in order to run it, you'd have to 
spin up the cassette tape and you'd play the game off the cassette tape, or you could save it to these great big cartridges that would store a little bit of data. Not like our, you know, 16 gig or 32 gig or 101 terabyte USB drive. They have like they have like terabyte. I saw I see flash drives that are like 512, and I still remember when I had a computer that was like two gigs, and we got to a point where it got full very quickly, and it was like you couldn't delete anything because it was like not enough memory, and then. I remember my next computer was like eight gigs. I was like, whoa. And now it's like my my RAM sticks, right, are bigger than eight gigs. So it's just crazy how just things evolve and go. At that time, what'd you want to be when you grow up? I knew at that point in time I wanted to be a developer. Oh yeah, I wanted to develop software because your brain gets into that pattern of just wanting to solve things. And I knew that whatever I did in life, it would include software development. And then it was, hey, Dan, why don't you try playing the trombone and music? And I kind of got confused a little bit because I loved the computers, but then I picked up the trombone and I just, I loved making noise. That was a great way for people. That's a great way to get attention, you know, but then I, I got good at it. And by the time I was, uh, out of high school, I was the uh, top trombonist in entire New England states. So when I went and graduated from high school, I had to pick a direction. Do I want to do music or do I want to do computers? And I ended up choosing music over computers, which was interesting because I did it for a couple of years. And then I figured out I kept gravitating towards computers. You know, I would go with music, music, tried to pick up learning the piano. And this is a different kind of analytical processing in my brain, which wasn't really, it wasn't really doing it for me. So I decided to at least let the computers or let the, the music side go and really focus on going the computer route. So I went to college for about a year and a half and decided, you know, i done music the, that year and a half and it wasn't working out. So I dropped out of college. Nice. So you dropped out of college. Now what came next? What happened after? So after college, I ended up working for actually before college, I ended up working for McDonald's, hated it. I told them, you know, I worked there for a week and I said, I'm giving you my two weeks notice. <laughs> did you stay the two weeks after or did they just say? I did. I stayed the two weeks and, you know, I finished up my two weeks and I knew there was a job opening at um, a place called Applied Graphics, which was an Apple store. You know, they had all the newest tech for the Macintoshes at the time. And the college has the, had those same Macintoshes. So I was like, I got to go learn how to, you know, program and do stuff on the Mac. Of course, back then, there was just three and a half inch floppies that you had that you stick in to boot up a computer and stuff. So I quit my McDonald's run for three weeks and started just working at an Apple store or applied graphics, which was a, an Apple reseller. Did you give your two weeks notice after one week for this one? No, no, no. I lasted for about maybe eight months and their sales went down and I got booted. <laughs> so I did, I did a lot of PC building at the time. So I would build PCs back in the eighties for people, you know, installing the hard drives, basically slapping computers together right from like a bare bones system 
getting the case motherboard, putting in the power supply, uh, you know, all the chips. Is it that much different than it is today? Is it easier or harder? It's a lot harder. I can't even keep up with it anymore, man. I mean, you and I were talking about, uh, you know, configurations on, oh, I'm getting this whole new build of, uh, you know, this i9 or whatever. Then you ask, ask me about the graphics card. I'm like, holy crap, I don't even know what I t- I'm talking about, but he does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. You, look, let me tell you. Look, I know enough. My friend helped me build my PC, so I knew the parts and stuff, but... The wiring is the one that gets like, you have to put the things in the right headers and all that stuff for the colors, you know, because I have like colored fans and everything. So, but, you know, it is it is pretty cool just like when you're involved in the process. Now, what happened next? So you got, you know, that job you said you had it for, you know, a couple of months and, you know, the sales weren't doing too well. What came next for you? Like I said, building computers. And then I started writing software for people, you know, just custom software in languages like... Um, old dbase and dbase plus and an older program dos based program called clarion which was a database platform so that's really where i got my feet wet into the database arena and then foxbase and fox pro and that carried me well into like my early 20s and from that point on you know and then i got published for the first time in a um i think i have it here it's a magazine called Fox Talk. I wrote a program that converted database architectures into a RTF file. RTF was an older style file used in Microsoft Word. So I got that published. Then a couple of years after that, I was uh, published in a Visual Basic magazine, Microsoft Visual Basic magazine, uh, with an article called What If Dr. Seuss wrote add-ins. Oh, okay. I like that. Yeah. Add-ins are a way of extending uh, Microsoft's architecture, you know, in their development environment. That went pretty well. And um, that was in the VB Tech Journal at that point in time. So that kind of, you know, all those different, you know, just Foxbase was cool. All those different development languages were an escape for me, you know, because I still had that trauma with me and it was still if if I messed up or you know I had a lot of off days back then and I could escape back into that development environment and just you know leave all the minutiae behind Janiad and just keep moving forward and just kind of forget about all the other stuff because at that point in time in my life I really didn't give a crap about anybody or anything uh, just because it was I didn't understand really I know my mom and dad, my adopted mom and dad, Maggie and Jerry, spent all this time with me and they did a great job raising me, but I didn't appreciate it at the time and I didn't understand at the time. I wouldn't understand all of that until I was 40. But the only thing I did understand is my mom always showed up for me when I was developing software. And that kind of really just kept in the forefront of my brain. You've obviously been coding for a long time, right? So it's been... What is it, 50 years you've been coding? 43 years. 43 years of coding. How has the industry changed over time, right? Because things are moving so quick now. And you've really seen it through the beginning to just where it is now. And then it just keeps on going now. Like, how has the industry changed over time? You know, history has a way of repeating itself. <laughs> and so does technology. It kind of reminds me of a, a food menu or something, you know, because we went from 
every 10 years, we go from like thin client and then all of a sudden we're going to fat client again and the technology gets bigger and better to handle those fat clients. So everybody's like, oh, I got to go over here. No, we got to go all thin client. No, we got to go over here. So the technology has definitely been repeating itself. But one thing that I saw was interesting and that's changed is the way AI has progressed, you know, since I was a youngster. It's amazing to see now you can take five seconds of your voice and somebody can deep fake your voice. There's software out there now. You can talk for five seconds. You can get on somebody's answer machine, talk for five seconds. Hello, I'd like to leave a message for Janiyad. Uh, can you give me a call at uh, 77-whatever? And that's all they need to deep fake your voice, even writing your own signature now. I just found out uh, yesterday there's AI that'll take a look at, you know, just a couple words of your writing and it'll replicate your signature and put it into a font. But wait, they don't even need your signature to replicate it. They could just look at the other stuff. Well, they, they look at your, they have to have some type, it, it, it'll match your handwriting. So it'll basically match your handwriting. Yeah, it really changes that. I mean, I'm not that surprised, but it's just, it's still mind blowing to me as it happens. Yeah. And the other tech that has been really cool to watch is about 20 years ago, I started getting into, um, well, all those cassette tapes that I used to use with gaming. So, you know, that, that kind of degraded the tech changed and those cassette tapes weren't used anymore. So I converted those cassette tapes into audio and I started, you know, just started recording audio and then recording audio over the audio. So I kind of got into like dubbing stuff of my own back then. Didn't know what it was at the time, but I liked the layering stuff. So I started to look at back then, like Adobe, I don't even know if Premiere was around. I forget what the name of the software was. I think it was Premiere. And I would start to edit things. Maybe it was Cyberlink. Maybe it was, a, I forget what the name of the software was, but I got interested in video editing. So I started picking up that and, you know, some of the dubbing that I did, I had these cables hooked up into the RGB outlets and, you know, the audio in and stuff, just doing all that kind of stuff. And that intrigued me. And to see where things are now, which is one of the reasons why I can't wait for my new PC to come in, to see like After Effects and, and the way Premiere, all the Adobe products have, have skyrocketed and it's, it's changed over the years. It's just incredible and how quickly you can do some of these animations, which I'm excited to see how my PC will render some stuff that used to take like 19 hours on my 10-year-old system. I'm really happy for you that you don't have to wait the 19 hours to kind of see, because I know how it is. You take 19 hours to render and then you realize that you missed something and whatever, and then you got to wait another 19 hours or you didn't do it correctly. So you've obviously done a lot. Was there ever a period of time where you progressed more? Than other periods of time or has it always been like hey i'm progressing i'm getting a little better a little better over time it started out with i couldn't i craved it so much that i had to i was getting bored I'd, I'd spend maybe about six months with one technology i'd get bored you know i i picked it up and i was a sponge with it but it had no real world applications for it so i just kept moving on and then i got a job at vermont inky which is a nuclear power plant when i was 25. I was a software engineer. We would develop software for the power plant. And the most intriguing thing, and this is where I learned about process improvement and really where the business side of my career and requirements took off. So I had all this tech inside my head 
but didn't really know how to put it to use in the real world. So I got to learn, you know, SQL Server back then and Microsoft Visual Basic and transactions and how they work through the Microsoft system. And finally, I was able to develop things like a badging system to work with the Kodak cameras. This is back in, in 1997, 98 timeframe. So I was able to develop those, you know, seeing, you know, having setting up a button to take automatically take a picture on a camera and then have that download onto a database. You know, that was fascinating. And then be able to, to use the badging printer to print that whole badge out. That kind of stuff just fascinated me. And I started picking up, you know, what those real world applications were. I think that was really the catalyst for my career was working at the nuclear power plant. The real world applications help. Early on, it was like an escape. And then later on, you liked the real world applications. What was the next evolution in your sort of how you viewed coding and software? When I left for my Yankee, I went to Goodrich Aerospace as a uh, e-business web developer. And one of the coolest projects that I'd worked on in my entire life was setting up what they call an API uh, for Goodrich Corporation to talk to Boeing and to talk to Airbus. We would get all of this data, they're called squawks, from the airlines. So it's basically, we wanted to calculate how our parts were performing on those aircrafts. And it's called mean time between failures. So we were calculating, you know, how many hours our parts were lasting on those aircraft. So we would get uh, squawks, which were, you know, they had trouble doing this and we had trouble doing that. So all that information we'd have to gather through an API back then, what's called a web service. But we would communicate with Boeing, we would communicate with Airbus and they would send that data back down and we had access at the time. We were just moving to SQL Server at where I worked at Goodrich. It was one of the divisions there. And we started capturing that. It was just amazing to see how that transfer of information, you know, was coming into our database and then we could send stuff back to them. So to keep that data synced up, that was so cool. I remember having a copy of the data when I was on an airplane and I'm like, I want to look at this tail number to see what, uh, you know, see what the squawks were, see what the air issues were on this plane. So I'm sitting there looking up the tail number and I hear, I'm sorry, this is the captain speaking. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to deplane everybody. We have an issue with one of the, you know, engines over here. And I'm like, oh my God, this is what was going on anyway. It's like, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. see it right there in front of me. That was the last time I looked up an aircraft tail number in that database because I was frequently flying back and forth. That's so cool. You've obviously had a long career. What were some of the hard things you had to go through throughout your career? It probably isn't what people would think. It wasn't the technology. It wasn't learning the technology. It was failure aspect of my career and always having to watch my back only because I put that on myself tonight. And my career was just littered with you're nothing but a piece of shit. You're not going to amount to anything in life. And for me, anytime I felt threatened or that competition, I was always a one-man show. Anytime I got into a position where there was a team, I would have a hard time, you know, because if somebody did something better than I did, I really took that as, you know, I'm going to lose my job. 
And that crippled me for probably about a good five to seven years. I progressed in my career. It was hard for me to work with teams until I got my, my arms wrapped around, you know, just being able to let go and finally got to a point where, you know, I did at Goodrich Corporation, I was on a team and there was that, what I felt as threatening competition, but the guys were just, they were great to work with. And it was there that I really learned that it wasn't really me. It was that team that Goodrich had created at the time. We just meshed so well together and we were very supportive of each other. And I didn't feel threatened by the way I was treated. That just gave me a different sense of, okay, maybe this development thing is not as bad as it looks. So I went from there and I went into, I moved down, I divorced and moved down to DC area so I could get a better job to be able to support my son who was still living in Vermont with his mom. So I wanted to be able to still support him. So I needed to find a place where I could make a better living. So I moved down and, and started consulting with tech systems and was able to work with some amazing teams down there. You know, at BAE, we did some work for NIH in their telecom division. And it was Nextel after that. And Nextel was bought out by Sprint. So I had a nice, nice run with working with just some great teams that really taught me that it's all about the team. It's not about the individual. Learning that, now you have this lesson going forward. How did that impact your career? Well, then I decided, you know, okay, i got to take a breath. So I took a job with a financial services firm. I stopped consulting. I met Tina and Annie Harmony. And I said, I really need to settle down and get a, a job where I'm not consulting or traveling around or Tina, as you know, is my wife today, and we've been together for almost 16 years now. It'll be, we'll be married 15 years on April 28th. I knew I had to get a, a, just a steady job. So I worked for Kessler Financial for almost seven and a half years. That I was a one-man show again. So it was a step forward because I got to kind of take a break and kind of make my own schedule, which I think that really prepped me for going out on my own. Because after that seven and a half years, they were suing Allianz Corporation at the time, and they ended up losing, and they had to pay some attorney's fees, millions of dollars of attorney's fees. And they let us know early that, you know, they were going to let us go. So I had that heads up. I says, all right, I'll create Dream and Software until I can find another job. And that's kind of how Dream and Software came about back in 2012. You know, again, one-man show, but... I had kind of a little bit of what I needed to know to run my own business, to make a living until it was on to the next chapter in my career. Yeah. So what was the next chapter in your career? That was a company called Nova Corporation. And that is working with, uh, it's owned and operated by the Navajo Indians. It was working in SharePoint at the time. So it's all this architecture that I picked up along the way in my career. And just applying SharePoint was quite new to me at the time. I'd, I'd had a little bit of experience with it in, at, uh, when I did some work with NIH, but hadn't really fully dived into the internal working. So it was a good way for me to learn some of the newer technology and 
met some really amazing people that, you know, even though I left there a year and a half later, it would stick with me uh, the rest of my life. People like Randy Wilson, he was a retired Air Force veteran, and he's just an amazing friend. Uh, Tiffany Roth, just some amazing people that I've just stayed friends with. I'd stayed friends with a few people on, on other jobs, but this taught me that how important it was to, well, maybe it was a little selfish, but how important it was to build those relationships, the solid relationships, especially, you know, in your career, because those are the people that are going to be your best advocates as you jump from job to job. Uh, you can have those solid references. So I understood that. And some of the best references I have back then in 2012 and 2013 are from those people that I stayed friends with. And it was just another chapter in my life where I learned how to build relationships with people. Was there ever a time the lack of a college degree held you back? No, no, because I knew in my mind, it didn't matter what it was. Technology to me was technology. It just translated to me ones and zeros. So if I had to pick up the technology, I knew I could learn it really quick. And I could go into a job and, and say, well, I don't have uh, experience, but I'm a quick study and I can pick it up. You know, and I'd say, I'd say within a couple of two or three months, I could pick it up. And I wouldn't be afraid because it was just technology to me. Did you ever get help back from the other side and that there's, they just felt like, hey, you don't have a degree. We don't think you're qualified. Or they were like, hey, you know, you have the experience and we think, you know, it's not a risk sort of taking you on. Never had a degree hold me up only one time and i can't even remember what the business was i think it was general dynamics they were looking for somebody with a bachelor's degree and they said like you don't meet the qualifications for about you know the bachelor's degree you were not interested i had a list of every criteria that they met on there and then some i was probably overqualified for that job but they didn't they wanted the degree and i thought to myself that is so short-sighted. So to me, he said, okay, I need to fend for myself on this. If somebody comes back and says, you know, I need a degree, I'm if I want that job, I'm going to tell them every reason why they should hire me for that job. Or I'm going to handpick jobs that I feel are the right fit for me. I don't go into looking for jobs thinking, well, it's a privilege for me to work for them. No, it's a privilege for you to have me on your team. It is a privilege because I'm privileged that you're my friend, right? I'm privileged that you're sharing the story. I feel the same way too, by the way. And I, I don't want anybody to think that's egotistical of me. That's just what I've learned. And that's the the that I have and what I do. Just for listeners, it's like you have to believe you belong there because if you don't believe you belong there, it will just hurt you in the long run. People will use it to pay you less. People will use it to not get you in the right rooms. You have to advocate for yourself, right? And especially when you don't have the degree, right? You have to make sure you believe you belong there because you want to be full confidence. You want to tell them what they need to know. You want to tell them what you bring to the table so that they select you. And then you pave the way to, you know, for other people without degrees. Now, what advice would you have for someone starting software? Because it's, it's honestly overwhelming, right? There's so many options right now. What advice would you have for someone who's young, you know, elementary, middle school, and getting started in software? I would probably 
let them know that it's going to be a very, very difficult road. If you wanted to start with something, I would try and pick up one of the databases that is out there, either something like uh, SQL or I guess on the Linux side, it could be Mongo, you know, one of the free database platforms that's out there and start learning just the languages that are in there. It's usually a standard query language or structured clear language, SQL, as it's called. And it's probably an easier introduction to if you're starting in software development of just getting into learning a language and you're not wasting your time because those things that you learn, uh, the database standpoint, will only better you down the road as a software developer to have those database platforms under your belt. If you get your thing or your passion is networking and figuring out how little pieces of data or packets travel through a network, and then, you know, maybe you want to start with just looking at getting A plus certified where you're just learning about uh, A plus certification is really just learning the basics of the operating system and knowing how packets are, are traveling, but uh, getting your feet wet in the, the operating system environment. Um, taking a look at, you know, getting some type of certification, networking certification on top of that. Go diving right in. Unless you're, you're going to software development, I wouldn't really recommend going in just picking up C Sharp or Python. Although I think Python, I haven't learned it yet, but I hear it's one of the easier languages to pick up. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of friends and Python is not too hard compared to other you know, languages and it's, it's used a lot. And now what do you kind of see the future, right? What do you kind of see the trend being for the next five to 10 years? Because now everything's, a lot of things are moving over to cloud. Now, a lot of things, and I figure it's going to have the same thing where eventually we're going to move back off the cloud, right? And then we're going to move back on then, right? So a lot of these trends are happening. What are kind of the trends you see in the future that people should really capitalize on? And blockchain are not going away. That is 100% not happening. Um, because the, the, the technology is solid, but it still has to mature. I mean, it's been maturing for for almost 10 years. And that's not going to slow down because the tech is, is solid. Um, I honestly see companies shifting to blockchain. I think they're going to shift it in such a way where they're not going to want to store all their data out on the blockchain publicly. They're going to want to store them on their own private blockchains internally. So I think that shift of what we talked about of fat client, thin client, fat client, thin client, and stuff going to the cloud and coming back off the cloud, just going to be, is you're going to see that shift with the blockchain as well. Definitely interested to see what quantum computing does, because that's really going to definitely shake up some industries and just change the way things are done. Because a lot of the encryption keys, right, with quantum computing, right, what do they get broken down into in seconds, right? Yeah. So what else do you kind of see? Like, how do you think the education system can be changed for someone like you to sort of cater to someone like you who's very passionate about, like, you know, something? Like, do you think you were served by the education system or do you felt like it didn't really help you and you had to kind of do things on your own? No, I was definitely served by the education system only because I have say that necessarily remember everything that I learned. But you know, as I reflect on that tonight, I see the relationships that I built back when I was younger and how those relationships have followed me, you know, 
graded school to high school and beyond. You know, I have probably just, I can count maybe three or four people that I'm really good friends with beyond those years. But those are probably the most important things to me. And when I got into music in high school, I was, I mean, I was the shit. <laughs> and, you know, in music and, and I was the shit in computers. I'm sorry for the language. Um, but I, I knew, I knew what I was doing back then. And, and my music teacher was just phenomenal. Richard Dodd, just phenomenal. He, he showed up and he was always working with me. Uh, I probably could have spent more time practicing on the trombone, but I have fond memories of, of, of school. And so I, I feel that education, you know, that was a huge part of my success as well. No, that's amazing to hear because a good school makes such a big difference. Good teachers, they really shape you and they really give you a foundation. Now, I wave a wand, you're 18 years old. What does Daniel Hall do? Change a thing. Change a thing, Janiyah, because I'm so blessed to have my wife and Tina on my side and they are my biggest teachers in life. I would not change a thing. I would tell my 18-year-old self to keep trucking along don't change a thing do what you're doing fail often you know i before i want on my epitaph you know when i die to be here lies a man that reciprocated kindness by failing often not tell him to change a darn thing when did it become easier to fail never easy to fail just understanding that chaos really breeds success and having that understanding that, you know, let's, let's take parenting for, for example. I always thought that as a parent and working with our children, you know, that are, have all this baggage and have all this trauma that they bring to us. And we had no idea how to navigate it. And we felt for years that we failed and failed and failed as parents. And that takes a toll. It really does. But one thing that I realized, you know, a couple of years ago, as I saw my children getting older and I saw my oldest, who was severely abused, her birth parents and uh, birth and step parent, uh, saw her graduate from high school at the age of 20. I realized at that point in time, and that was two years ago, I realized at that point in time, we got there because we felt like we failed so many times, but we did exactly what my mom did. I came to her with those computer green bar, those sheets of green bar paper. We kept showing up for her. We kept being there for her, despite everything that she put us through. We kept showing up, and that helped at least us understand that we didn't fail. We are showing our children how to fail and two, how to be resilient people. Keep showing up. Look, at the end of the day, to make sure that when we're gone, our children show up for each other and they reciprocate kindness, same kindness and the same characteristics of, you know, celebrating others' victories for you know, having empathy, all those skills that we we crave as a leader, we try to teach them. They don't always have to win. 
You can win. You can win, but you can also lose and still win by having the ability to say, great job, you did such a great job when somebody else wins, you know, and praise them for their victories. And humble when you do win, thank you so much for the help and being so appreciative and having that gratitude. You teach that overnight. You learn that by failing often. So I hope that helps answer your question. No, I mean, it's, you're right. It's not easy to fail. But realizing that it's okay, that you can learn from it. One day that failure, eventually you're like, I'm glad I failed because now I know I won't repeat it on a much bigger stage, right? It's better to fail on a small stage than on bigger stage. What does the future hold for you? Grandkids, <laughs> hopefully down the road. Um, most importantly is to seeing our, seeing, you know, my wife to make sure that I'm continually showing up for her and making sure that she has time to recharge her batteries uh, by going out with friends. And, you know, for the longest time, it took me out to understand what her needs were. And the future holds, you know, just making sure that I continue to show up for her and that you know, our, our children are, are showing up for each other. Uh, on that, it's just sure that we have the tools to help them thrive. You know, Parker, who is uh, nine years old and has, he's autistic and he was uh, drug and alcohol exposed in utero. You know, we still have a lot to navigate with him. So that future is just full of understanding, continuing to understand how to help our children have better coping me mechanisms as they progress from, you know, into their teen years to adulthood future looks like you know everything else in between denied it fills in itself you know doesn't hold vacations the future doesn't hold cars these glorious cars it'll be another 10 years before i get a pc <laughs> i mean your pc is probably gonna last 20 years if for the listeners daniel bought a pc that's just a futuristic pc it's gonna last a long time top of the line so i mean you deserve it so you've been making you know going around the podcast circuit recently can you you want to share your experiences about that and you know what motivated you and what's the future looking like in that scene motivated me to start getting on live streams and podcasting you know when my brother passed away in 2020 uh, one of the first people that I felt like I could actually talk to, you're just so easy going. I'm like, this guy's got 20,000 followers. It's almost 20,000 followers. He's never going to talk to me. And you just kept on talking and carrying on conversations with me. And I thought that was the greatest thing. And then one day you said, you know, I really love your story. You should get on one of my, my, my casts or live streams. And I'm like, uh, nervous. You know, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And you just kind of eased me into it and snuck in on Gabe Leal's podcast first or his live stream. And I said I wanted it to be you first, but uh, you guys helped, really helped me to get my story out there. And to the point where it was so therapeutic for me to, you know, continue to talk about that. <clears throat> I felt that I started learning that, you know, my story is, is kind of, you know, a unique one. And that I wanted to try to, you know, approach other podcasts and other live streams 
about, you know, just talking about that journey in hopes to help or inspire other people to keep going. And ago, I got an email from Creating a Family, which is one of the biggest uh, in the U.S. It's the number one podcast with uh, 20,000 downloads a month and 110K visitors a month. They would talk about my journey and, you know, in the hopes of, of helping other people, you know, that have come into foster care and are going down the same road and, you know, experiencing that same trauma to at least show them how I flipped that whole scenario. So being on your podcast and just being on all these different podcasts and live streams has really helped me to rewrite that story. Not really rewrite the story, but write it in such a way that I could approach other people. So basically putting a pitch together for other podcasts to be able to, you know, to people understand that you can do it. There's a way to do it, to flip your whole story of negativity into something that's positive. And to also be able to flip that story that you don't have to yell and scream at your children like I did when they were two years old. That you can flip that around and listen with more than just your ears about what your family's needs are. I mean, that's amazing. You want to know something? Like, I'm glad you respond to my messages. So, you know, just realize it goes both ways, you know, because, yes, I have, I think I'm on like 30,000 followers. But at the end of the day, it's really who your friends are. Like, a lot of people don't realize this, but I've had a lot of great connections for 2,000 followers, right? Two to 3,000. And even if I never grew my followers since then, I still had just such strong quality connection because so many people get caught up in the numbers. But it's just really knowing a couple of good people who you support that support you and just growing with them, right? Realizing that a rising tide lifts all boats. And as your friends do better, you do better. As you do better, your friends do better. It's just crazy because even along my journey, I've been able to sort of uplift the people around me, right? That now I know resumes and I, you know, I help people around me with resumes. So it's like, now I know, like, no matter what, if regardless of what situation my friend's in, I can always help them get a better job, you know? So that's always comforting to me. And, you know, they help me out in tremendous ways. So that's amazing. So any final words before we wrap up? You have, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave the parents with one uh, tip uh, for their tool belt. You know, whenever we put our kids to bed tonight, we always ask them the question, you know, what's tomorrow? And they'll say, tomorrow's a new day. And we'll say a new day for what? And they'll say a new day to make it the best day ever. We don't just say that. That's become a tradition for us every night with our kids. And that shows them that we're leaving all the crap that, you know, may have happened during the day. We're leaving that back in the day. Tomorrow's a new day. We wake up fresh. And we practice this every day. And Tina taught me a lot of this because she, she does that. She could be mad as hell at you. And she'll next day just fresh. And it's just to see how she, she finds she's just, she's the best in everybody. So we, we went down that road with our kids and we, that's an easy way for parents to reciprocate kindness to their kids. <clears throat> that, leave that stuff behind. No, that's okay. You know what? Tomorrow is a new day and I'll make sure to make the most of it. How would people follow you? How would people support you, get in contact with you? LinkedIn uh, is really where I hang out. So 
LinkedIn is the best way to to follow or get in touch with me. And I will respond to messages. No, he's very responsive. Follow Daniel. You give a lot of the thing that really, you give a lot of just great advice on so many topics. I really love just your cybersecurity related posts, how you really talk about, because I know you've done all those posts on Clubhouse and some of the vulnerabilities and all that. So that's always cool. Even if you're not into that, you just learn a lot. You just learn about how to be a great person. You just learn about just all the things that Daniel's doing. And Daniel's so supportive. So thank you for sharing your story. I know so many people will benefit. I know a lot about you, but it's always good to hear more about you. And I look forward to following your journey and just supporting you in any way I can. And I truly appreciate all of your support, Daniel. I, I love our, I love our friendship and I love the people that are listening now that just, you know, took a moment, a time out of their life to make it about, you know, listening to you and I. So that's priceless. Yeah. And I know they've gotten so much value. So thank you for this amazing episode, Daniel. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, no degree.com. Yeah, so... You got no degree? No problem. No problem. Any problem, we can solve we them. We got this. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. Growing and knowing. Wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. If you didn't know, now you know. Let's sing that again, everybody. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in a knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah.